Welcome back to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we get to speak with Bart Stevens, the co-founder and managing partner of Blockchain Capital. It's the first venture capital firm to raise a venture fund through an initial coin offering and has 72 portfolio companies across three funds. Bart has a 20-year background, both as an operating entrepreneur and as a venture capitalist. He earned his BA in political science from Princeton. Welcome aboard, Bart. Thank you for having me, Fraser. Looking forward to uh, speaking today. Terrific. You come from a deep background of operating and investing in technology-based venture capital. Take us through a little bit about your early experiences and the lessons you learned from them. So my co-founder at Blockchain Capital is my brother, Brad. And we both have a pretty diverse background that is really at the intersection of technology and finance. My first job out of college was at E-Trade. And E-Trade, as many of your listeners will be aware, is one of the pioneers in online stock trading. And for me, that was a formative experience. We were charging $15 for a stock trade online, an industry we helped to pioneer. And our major competitor were the full-service brokerage firms like Merrill Lynch. And Merrill Lynch was charging their customers $400. And in my short tenure uh, at E-Trade, I was there for about two and a half years, we took 5 million customers from Merrill Lynch. And it taught me one important thing, and that is better, faster, cheaper usually wins the day. And if you want to fast forward to the blockchain industry now, I have a lot of flashbacks to those days in the mid-90s where, in many ways, blockchain technology allows for the better, faster, cheaper movement of value around the world, whether that's a Bitcoin or a stock or a bond. And so our background is, is one of uh, both technology and financial services, which is pretty applicable to the industry that we find ourselves in today. As a person in the asset management industry, and I'm seeing the same fee compression and rapid expansion of efficiency, either from people coming from mutual funds and going to ETFs to uh, just a different experience going through a Fidelity platform versus a traditional wealth management platform, it's just seismic. I can only imagine that uh, the, the pace of change that you saw is going to further impact that type of thing that we're seeing today. I think that's an accurate observation. It is seismic, and there's also an interesting demographic play going on here. I recently gave a speech at Harvard Business School, and I asked the students at this technology conference to raise their hand. I asked, who owns stocks? I was shocked. About 15% of the students raised their hand. And then I said, who owns either Bitcoin, Ether, or has participated in an ICO, an initial coin offering? And about 85% of the hands went up. And this is kind of confirms a lot of anecdotal information that we've had over the last five years being active in this industry, that there is a, a feeling with younger people in particular, millennials, that the system is not working for them. And in many ways, Bitcoin speaks to them because it is natively digital. It is kind of outside of the traditional system. And they're more likely to own Bitcoin than own stocks in many cases. And so I think if you're a financial services firm, like you mentioned Fidelity, my brother has actually worked at Fidelity for several years. I think the traditional financial services products, as you mentioned, ETFs, we're seeing compression movement towards passive products with lower fee structures. But also now a new asset class is being developed here when you talk about blockchain-based assets or cryptocurrencies. And I think they appeal in particular to younger people and millennials. And so that's an important aspect of what's going on here, the shifting patterns of consumers of financial services. So let's dial back to the blockchain itself. And it's a concept that I think for the rank and file can be sort of a deep concept to take in. As I understand it at its basic level, it's a continuously growing list of records, which I guess we call blocks, that are linked and secured with cryptography. And then it's the blockchain system of recording and verifying transactions and data that's really the exciting game changer across many industries. You've got it correct. So I like to think of the blockchain as an infrastructure layer. So we all use the Internet every day. It's great. You know, it allows for the instantaneous exchange of data. 
So when we talk about the Internet, we're really just talking about the Internet of Information. When we try to talk about the blockchain, and it's a, it's a new technology and a complicated concept, we refer to it as the Internet of Value. Because underneath the hood of Bitcoin is this incredibly robust technology known as the Bitcoin blockchain, and it allows for the instantaneous exchange of value of, of Bitcoin transactions. And in the future, we think stocks, bonds, and currencies, and other asset classes can be securely traded and settled using this technology. But it is essentially a network of hundreds of thousands of computers worldwide that are all running the same software. And these computers, this decentralized and distributed network of computers, they're all working together to process transactions, as you mentioned, in kind of 10-minute blocks. They also serve to secure the network. And the system has a financial incentive that encourages people to donate their computational resources to this decentralized database, if you will. And so it's an elegant system of aligning interests to further one goal. And that goal is to make sure that all the transactions are verifiable and truthful. There's no such thing as a counterfeit Bitcoin transaction. If one of the computers tries to to forge one, all the other computers in the network won't recognize it and it gets kicked out. And so the blockchain technology is a new concept in data architecture and security in many ways. It is, instead of a centralized database, it's decentralized and distributed. And it is ultra secure, ultra robust, and keeps forgeries from happening. So it is it's impossible to forge a Bitcoin transaction. So, you know, some calculations have been done, and it's not a total apples-to-apples apples comparison, but if you take a look at the computational hash power, is the term of the Bitcoin blockchain, it is larger than all of Google's data centers combined, times a 1,000. It's really hard to wrap your brain around a 1,000 Googles, but that is just illustrative of the, the, the scale of the computational resources we're talking about that maintains a system of this indelible or uh, record of transactions, as you mentioned earlier. So as you're sort of analyzing how to invest, how to allocate capital to the businesses and themes that look like they're going to take advantage of this great architecture system well, uh, how do you first start getting your arms around what, what's going to work and what's not? And I think uh, sort of a follow-up to that is I, I understand the concept that there's a public blockchain type of system, and that's upon which which the, the currencies revolve around in other systems. But then there are private systems that might be useful for various industries to be able to transfer information and transactions. So we are venture capitalists. We invest in smart young entrepreneurs that want to make a dent in the universe. And many of them are voting with their feet and quitting their day jobs and starting blockchain technology companies because they see what we see which is this is an incredibly exciting, robust technology, and there's going to be all sorts of value built on top of it. And so we invest in companies that are looking at solving business problems in financial services, in healthcare, in logistics, identity management, energy. People tend to think of kind of blockchain technology as just financial services. And while it certainly will have a major disruptive impact on financial services, we see applications in government services, healthcare and legal services, et cetera. We see it as a horizontal enabling technology. So we try to back the best entrepreneurs that are solving a real business problem or building some new product or service that is solving a pain point for someone, whether that's an enterprise or a consumer. And um, you mentioned that the, there are different approaches. There are public blockchains like the Bitcoin blockchain and the Ethereum blockchain, and there are others, but those are the two big ones. And then there's also some private blockchain initiatives. These are generally being led by consortiums of banks. So there's one called R3 that has a bunch of banks involved and building kind of a private distributed ledger type blockchain system. There's a, another consortium that's called the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. That's obviously in the Ethereum ecosystem. And there's one called Hyperledger that has uh, a, n a number of enterprises involved, and that has participation from large companies, including IBM. 
The analogy I like to use with the private blockchains is that um, this is a way for risk-averse enterprises to experiment with this technology. In the mid-90s, the open internet, or the World Wide Web, as it was called then, was scary to large enterprises like banks and financial services firms. So they kind of got comfortable by putting training wheels on, and they built things called intranets. That's I-N-T-R-A, intranet. And these were basically private internets that connected all of their offices and regional headquarters, what have you, but didn't really connect to the open internet as we know it. That was a way for them to get comfortable with this technology. And obviously, if you fast forward 20, 25 years later, all of the major enterprises connect to the open internet as we know it. And so that was kind of tiptoeing for, uh, for them to get comfortable with the internet. And we're seeing some of that same behavior with respect to blockchain technology, where large enterprises are building private blockchains because it's more comfortable for them. Eventually, what we see in the technology industry is open systems tend to win. And I think that'll be the case here. Whether it's the Bitcoin blockchain or the Ethereum blockchain or something that has yet to be invented, open systems tend to attract more human capital, more venture capital, more mind share, and more developers. And, and that ultimately is why we see open systems win over closed systems. So what we're seeing with large enterprises and private blockchains is rational, risk-averse behavior, but I don't think it's sustainable over the very long term. So how do you sort of analyze or get your arms around governmental regulation and I guess the notion that uh, the public sector many times is either quick to understand or quick to adopt and maybe faster to regulate certain things where you're trying to get as maximum impact as you can out of various ventures but you, you and you want to do it in a safe way, but it's sometimes difficult to get regulatory body or government to understand the impact that you're trying to have? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. And it's an astute observation. Let me first start with the basics, which is you'd be surprised how many people think Bitcoin is illegal. Bitcoin is totally legal. The underlying blockchain technology is growing like a weed. So here in the United States, the regulatory regime is fairly benign. Bitcoin is legal. It is taxed. So the IRS basically has given guidance and said, this looks like digital property to us. So if you buy Bitcoin and sell it in under a year, you're subject to short-term capital gains as if you bought or sold an apartment building or an apartment or a stock for that matter. If you hold it for longer than a year, you're subject to long-term capital gains. So pretty favorable tax treatment, actually. Um, but the regulators have a dual mandate. They, on one hand, need to protect consumers from fraud. And so on the other hand, they also need to make sure that the United States is competitive in a global environment. And by that, I mean, if regulators take too strong of a hand and kind of crush this technology when it's in its infancy, and it is in its infancy right now, this is not going to be uninvented. It is just going to move to a different jurisdiction. So we'll see innovation happen in Singapore and in South Korea and in Switzerland and other jurisdictions, maybe London, that are more welcoming of emerging financial technology. And so we talk to regulators all the time. We try to help them understand this technology, and their, their task is a tough one. Because if you talk to the Federal Reserve and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, it kind of looks like a currency to them. If you talk to the CFTC, which regulates commodities, Bitcoin looks like digital gold to them. If you talk to the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States, it kind of looks like an equity. And, and the truth is, Bitcoin and Ether and many of these tokens they are all of those things, yet none of those things. This is the emergence of a new asset class, and it doesn't fit neatly into one of the existing regulatory regimes. So what we our hope in talking with regulators is that we want the United States to be competitive on a global basis. 
blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies is a transnational global phenomenon. And if we overregulate it here, the innovation will go elsewhere. And the analogy I like to use is the internet. There's a reason that United States-based companies dominate the internet. I'm talking about Apple and Google and Amazon and Netflix and Facebook. There's $4.5 trillion of market cap in those companies. And they're all in the U.S. And they all employ hundreds and hundreds of thousands, millions of, of U.S. citizens. And that innovation is here in the United States because in the mid-90s, the Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, and even the IRS made a very benign regulatory regime, right? When you have an Amazon order, they said, hey, no sales tax. And so it is our hope that the regulatory authorities are in constant dialogue with participants in the industry to craft smart, balanced, and thoughtful regulation and to let this industry grow so U.S. companies and enterprises can be leaders in the blockchain of value, just like we have the leading companies in um, the, the Internet of Value, just like there are our Internet companies are the leaders in the Internet of Information. And so that is a constant back-and-forth dialogue between regulators and stakeholders in the blockchain technology sector. One of the real interesting ways that I think the blockchain and maybe Bitcoin in particular, Ethereum, can disrupt maybe in the banking world and the financial services world is that I think it can help ultimately bring banking to underserved markets uh, and, and reduce friction and uh, make e-commerce transactions that much easier. But then you contrast that with Jamie Dimon's comment that he says, oh, you know, Bitcoin, you know, it's borderline fraudulent and so on. How do you sort of manage the, the public relations on that side of things so that the long-term value that you're looking to create isn't swamped by maybe people who don't understand what's happening? It's a challenge. Um... Listen, Jamie Dimon doesn't have to like Bitcoin. He can have a negative opinion on it, but he is dead wrong when he calls it a fraud. This is a system that is the antithesis of a fraud. The blockchain is a decentralized, distributed ledger of every transaction that has ever happened and will ever happen in Bitcoin. It is multiple copies of a ledger on hundreds of thousands of computers worldwide. It is the literally quite opposite of a fraud. It is transparent. It is redundant, and it is cryptographically secure. So Jamie Dimon simply hasn't done his homework. Um, and that's one of the major problems of Bitcoin. It, you know, that it was misused by criminals in the early days. It was used for drug transactions. A lot of that stuff has gone by the wayside. But that stigma remains. And so whether it's Jamie Dimon talking about something that he doesn't truly understand or some of the stigma associated with bad actors or criminals in the early days, that is still a cloud that hangs over, over Bitcoin. Um, and it's unfortunate, but it will dissipate in time. You'd be surprised how many people discount Bitcoin in particular and to a lesser extent blockchain technology just because they don't understand it. And the truth is this is complex. It's complicated. But most people you know, can't tell you how an Internet router works or optical networking, but they know and use the Internet every day. We, we think a lot of this stuff will be abstracted in the background and people will just know they're having a better, faster, cheaper financial services experience. Now, Bitcoin creators kind of conceived of Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer -peer payment mechanism, and it was invented in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis, where firms like J.P. Morgan failed us dramatically and had to be bailed out by your taxpayer money and my taxpayer money. There's been no Bitcoin bailout ever. So that's something that's interesting to note. By the way, J.P. Morgan lost 32 million customer accounts three years ago, so they get hacked all the time. Um, but putting Jamie Dimon and his ignorance aside... We're very constructive on Bitcoin's peer-to-peer -peer payment technology in developing markets. 
So Jamie Dimon is never going to care about you if you live in India or Africa or South America or Latin America because his fixed cost structure is too high. He can't offer financial services. But there's 2.5 billion people in the world that have a smartphone in their pocket. And if you have a smartphone in your pocket, you have a bank in your pocket. It's called the Bank of Bitcoin. And so blockchain-based financial services can bring financial inclusion to 2.5 billion people. So for the first time, they can make a payment, they can save, they can borrow, they can loan money to people. And, and these are the same people, by the way, that never had a telephone. They went from no phone, they skipped over landlines, and they went right to a, a mobile phone. And so in, in the United States, we take our financial services for granted. You and I both have Venmo and PayPal, and I have an E-Trade account, and a credit card that gives me airline miles. And there's ATM machines on every corner in every major urban market. That infrastructure doesn't exist. And so people aren't using Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer payment technology in the U.S. because our payment technologies are pretty darn good. But if you're competing against nothing, we think there are great prospects for Bitcoin and other related cryptocurrencies in developing economies. And, and that's fundamentally a good thing. If you can bring 2.5 billion people into the world of financial services, you're lifting people out of poverty. And that's something that I think a lot of participants in our industry can feel really good about. I sort of analogize it to the development of the wireless phone and cell phone technology. I mean, it seemed to me that the U.S. was slow or maybe not as quick to adopt, uh, certainly the technology, because there was a pretty robust wired system in place. But uh, Af- you know, continents like Africa and certainly Europe, they were fast adopters and ended up ultimately in some ways being leaders in that industry until the United States kind of woke up to what was going on there and sort of put its... Uh, industrial might behind uh, innovating in that world. I mean, it seems like Bitcoin might be in the same uh, in the I same bracket. I think that's a very appropriate analogy. And so as I look at it too, I, as I work for a bank and I say, I hear what you're talking about, I see examples elsewhere and clients ask about it. I don't know, firms like Western Union and wire transfer services and even traditional banks generally in terms of sort of the, the day-to-day business of banking, it seems to me that it's just a matter of time and it may be in the midterm where that is almost completely disrupted. Would that make sense or am I, am I sort of thinking about flying cars and teleportation? You are not thinking about flying cars and teleportation. I must make a disclosure here. I am personally short Western Union stock. It is a 200-plus-year-old company, and I don't think it's going to exist in 15 years unless they embrace this technology. The fact that they charge family members 10 to 15% to send money to one another is unconscionable. We have a company called Abra, that will do it for 50 basis points, and it's mobile phone to mobile phone based. So one of the cool things about blockchain technology is it alleviates the need for a trusted third-party middleman. So historically, we've had to have two different databases reconcile with one another, or you didn't trust someone on the other side of the world. So there was an intermediary like Western Union that stood in the middle, or in the stock market, there was you know, stock transfer agents. And a lot of these technologies and a lot of these kind of incumbents we think will go away in time. And um, the blockchain will replace that stuff. Now, it'll it'll take some time. Western Union probably can adopt this technology and reduce its price points. But we have a bunch of kind of oligopolies in the United States, whether you want to think about MasterCard, American Express, and Visa, which are kind of government-sanctioned oligopolies, and they charge merchants 2.5%. That's a lot if you're a merchant with a low-margin business online. If you accept Bitcoin, you know, we have payment processing companies that can do that for dramatically lower, maybe 50 basis points. And so as this technology gets adopted on a global basis, we will see winners and losers. The companies that can embrace this technology, I think, will be winners. The companies that ignore it will be losers. So for Bitcoin, Ethereum, and the other currencies, as I think of a currency, and clients have asked me about it a little bit, and one thing that I can't figure out for myself is the fact that 
from a confidence perspective, traditional currencies are backed by a country, and Bitcoin both does not suffer from that nor benefit from it. How do you see that playing out over time as as the currency market develops for the various venues? I know Bitcoin has a finite amount of Bitcoins that are available, and so in some ways that cap helps to, at the very least, sort of provide some clarity around the availability of the currency. Ethereum does not. I guess the others do not as well. How do you deal with that when talking to people? I actually think the term cryptocurrency is unfortunate and a bit of a misnomer. You're right. Currencies traditionally are backed by governments. Traditionally, those currencies were backed by hard assets, namely gold. In the 70s, obviously, the United States moved off that without gold standard, and so now we have fiat currencies. And fiat currencies mean that governments can print trillions and trillions and trillions at their discretion. Those decisions are made by unelected leaders at the Federal Reserve. And so many people are drawn to Bitcoin for the same reason they're drawn to gold. Gold has historically been kind of outside of the financial system. It's been a store of wealth. It has historically been inflation resistant. And I actually think Bitcoin in particular, its closest analog is call it digital gold or gold 2.0. So it is, it, it is less of a currency to me and more of a digital commodity. Um, it is also not back, Bitcoin is not backed by a government. It is inflation resistant. It's actually a deflationary asset. There's fewer and fewer Bitcoin produced by the system as a function of time. And so it has so many of those same characteristics as gold. But I would argue Bitcoin is, has more utility. I can be halfway around the world from you and send you one one thousandth of a penny in, in Bitcoin, or I could send you a million dollars in a transaction that will settle in 10 minutes. I can't shave off a little bit of my gold coin and jam it into my computer and send it to you. So Bitcoin has some advantages over gold. So I tend to think of it more as a digital commodity rather than a currency. Cool stuff. So let's veer off into other applications of blockchain. One area where I think it could have another massive impact is in the idea of identity management. I I think people struggle with keeping passwords safe, with understanding how to access accounts, how to access records, how to store records, things like that. Is the market there for blockchain? And how is that going to impact uh, that world? So we've invested in a company called Civic Key. And Civic Key uses blockchain technology for the management of your identity, just as you mentioned. Right now, most of your listeners, and certainly myself, I am just inundated with trying to keep track of passwords, and it's, it's a real pain. So many people have outsourced this to Facebook. You know, there's those buttons on websites that say, log on to Facebook. When you log on with Facebook, Facebook is tracking you and data mining you. And that is increasingly an uncomfortable experience for people, especially when they see the large internet monopolists like Google and Apple and Facebook being potentially complicit in um, things that are on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and New York Times with respect to Russian interference with our democracy. So I think you will begin to see over time people want to take more sovereign control of their own financial future, and Bitcoin is an interesting tool for that. I think people will want to take more sovereign control over things that matter to them, like their health information and their identity. And blockchain technology is a very robust and secure infrastructure to do so. So I would encourage your, your listeners to check out Civic Key. And you can manage your own identity with that and and Bitcoin for their own financial sovereign power. And eventually you're going to see companies do things like offering um, secure storage of your medical records. So you don't have to um, outsource that custody to an insurance company, let's say. And many people don't have a great relationship with their health insurance companies. So a lot of this technology and a lot of its applications in new new industries are, are really about empowering the individual. And I think that's kind of a theme that will become increasingly important 
in an era where, you know, Equifax gets hacked and barfs 133 million social security numbers all over the Internet. This is going to be increasingly common, and consumers have new choices with respect to blockchain-based financial services, identity management, healthcare records, th- these sorts of uh, products and services. I was speaking at a conference a few weeks ago about cybersecurity and estate planning, and one of the questions that came up was they said, well, you know, how secure is my information? And I, I said, I would just have to assume your information is out there. Uh, I don't think there is any security anymore at the moment. If Equifax has barfed up 150 million Social Security numbers and probably other information, I don't really trust the other two credit reporting agencies to be any more secure on that front. So I think you're right. Anything that helps to erect useful speed bumps between you and hackers and other bad actors and the ability to impact your information, I think that's just a robust market waiting to happen. And you know, my job is to invest in talented entrepreneurs and engineers that are building the products and services on top of this infrastructure to bring these types of services to you and to me and to your listeners. So we're in the business of financing small companies where they can hopefully turn into very large companies that can offer these products and services that are very relevant in this digital age of ours. So what are uh, some other themes and businesses that we might be missing? Uh, What other things do you find interesting that blockchain can affect? I mean, it's it's somewhat ironic coming from a venture capitalist, but we're seeing um, blockchain technology disrupt the venture capital industry. The Ethereum ecosystem, you know, so I talked about Bitcoin earlier, and I, I really see Bitcoin as more of a digital commodity or, or gold 2.0. There's an argument to be made that Ethereum is really NASDAQ 2.0. Companies and projects are now using blockchain technology to crowdsource capital, not from Wall Street or not from Silicon Valley's Sand Hill Road, with the fancy venture capital firms there, but from their future users. And this is this technology known as an ICO, an initial coin offering. And I would caution your users that there is a lot of scams and kind of shady behavior going on in ICOs, but that doesn't mean the technology is not real. It is. So in an ICO, an entrepreneur can crowdsource capital from their future users of a tokenized network. These these coins have a, a dual function. One is a speculative function, and one is the coin or the token has a, a function in the network, like we just invested in one called Filecoin. Filecoin is a decentralized and distributed version of Dropbox. So if you want to store your files into a, a cloud-based service, you could go to Dropbox or you could pay half price and, and go to Filecoin. And this network hasn't launched yet, but it'll launch in the next six months. And we're seeing basically a wholesale disruption of the venture capital industry where regular users and regular investors can invest in these startups, these seed stage startups. You don't have to be Founders Fund or Andreessen Horowitz, you can be a regular investor if you're savvy about cryptocurrencies and you want to participate in the financing of a tokenized network. There are new options available to you by participating in an ICO. If you don't trust yourself to do the homework yourself, you could invest in a specialist fund that does just that, like mine. That's, that's the business I'm in. Um, but I only mention it because there's now been $3.1 billion raised in ICOs in the last six months. That's more than NASDAQ IPOs. So it's a brand new technology, and it is expanding the concept of venture capital. It's inviting everyone to the party. You don't have to be at an elite Wall Street institution or a Silicon Valley CEO. And so I think it's a really interesting development, at least in, in my industry. And it offers to kind of cut users in on the value that is created in a network rather than just you know, traditional passive financial firms. And, and so we are seeing blockchain technology disrupt the venture capital industry in many ways and, and enlarge the concept of how capital formation happens how value is created in the network, and importantly, how that value is shared. 
and it's shared in a more meritocratic or an, an equitable way than uh, traditional you know, Silicon Valley financings or Wall Street financings. Cool. Are there any fads or business themes that are going in the wrong direction? Uh, I mean, you mentioned ICO scams, but is there, do you see blockchain going in a direction that you don't think makes much sense? I mean, we see lots of suspect business plans. We, for every one investment we make, we've probably turned down 99 others. There's a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial activity, but that doesn't mean it makes for a good product or service or a good investment for our clients. And so it's an exciting industry due to all the new company formation and, and tokenized networks that are being conceived of and built. But it's an exhausting industry. These markets never close. It's a global phenomenon. And um, there are definitely some ideas out there that are, have been tried before and haven't worked. And now they're, they're trying to do ICOs. And so we encourage people to um, do their homework and be careful. I, I think this industry demands specialization. So that's why our firm is focused full-time on blockchain technology and the cryptocurrency ecosystem. It's, it's moving so quickly. And th- there are some um, projects out there that you know, I, don't, I don't care for. I won't name names. But generally speaking, we want to see this technology solve real business problems, whether they're problems for consumers or problems for enterprises. We're interested on the global scale in this. So we don't just invest in and around Silicon Valley. We spend a lot of time on airplanes. We've got portfolio companies that are in Israel, in Europe, in Spain, in South America, Latin America, Korea, China, etc. And so it's an industry that is an around-the-clock industry. It's fast-moving, and there's a constantly changing regulatory environment. So it's challenging, um, but it's also exhilarating and, and one of the um, most interesting things I've ever been a part of. So one other issue that pops up in my mind, I mean, you hear the stat that uh, half of all the data sort of generated has happened in the last six months. And I think with the blockchain, you're going to see a, a geometric progression from there. Can the computational power keep up with this explosion of data? I think it, it seems like the architecture and the idea behind it seems great. And you hope Moore's law keeps going and that the processing capability doubles every year. But is there a risk that the hardware can't keep up with the software? Not really. If anything, it's the software that is um, the challenge. The hundreds of thousands of computers worldwide that make up the Bitcoin blockchain and, and the Ethereum blockchain, we have a, more hardware than we know what to do with. It's a massive computational resource that is arguably overdone. The challenge really is on the software side. In, in the Bitcoin ecosystem in particular, there is no CEO of Bitcoin. This is an open source software ecosystem. And, and as such, the contributors that improve the software and tweak the software and patch the software and add features and improvement, they are an open source software community. There is no boss. It's a leaderless organization. And so there's a sociological experiment going on here, which is how do you manage a huge project in a decentralized fashion with no leadership? And there's differing opinions on how best to scale the Bitcoin network in particular. And so there's a group of developers called Bitcoin Core that have done an incredible amount of heavy lifting to date, and they have views that um, on how this network should scale. And those views are not necessarily even consistent within Bitcoin Core. And there's other groups of developers that want to take the technology in another direction. And that's why we're seeing a fracturing in the development community to some extent and something called forking that happens where people take the code and they, they fork it and they kind of copy it and go in another direction. This is um, all new kind of frontier experience for uh, the open source software uh, community with respect to, uh, to Bitcoin. You know, the Linux is, um, operating system and the Linux open source development community is probably the best analog, but you could make the case that the stakes are higher with Bitcoin because we're talking about now close to $100 billion of value. 
Um, and so there are differing opinions and trade-offs with respect to centralization versus decentralization, transaction processing per second, these sorts of things. And people have differing views, and we will see how this stuff gets sorted out. But what you don't see is a top-down mandate from a CEO, because that's not the model that we have here in Bitcoin. It's pretty interesting to watch. So I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on and my inner conspiracy theorist comes out. What happens if the electromagnetic pulse occurs, whether through a nuclear device or if terrorists somehow find a way to fry the circuitry in a localized area of the computer systems that are in place? It seems to me the decentralization of Bitcoin and blockchain is, is really probably a great mechanism against that in some ways. But is that something that anybody worries about uh, in terms of building the infrastructure? I think centralized networks are more at risk to bad actors like that. So if you have a large central data repository and there's an EMP that would go off, that would be more of a risk. One of the interesting things about the Bitcoin blockchain network and other blockchain technologies, it is incredibly robust as a result of its decentralization and distributed fashion. So you know, to go with your conspiracy theory, you'd have to have multiple EMPs going off at and in multiple jurisdictions at the same time to take out all the major nodes. And I see that as unlikely. And you would want to go after more centralized targets. But that is probably outside of the, the scope of this conversation. I see it as a, a very, very low risk. Okay, great. I'll, I'll sleep better at night thinking about that. <laughs> so <laughs> terrific stuff, Bart. Thank you very much. What, what is a good way to follow the development of blockchain? I'm, there's news about it uh, all over the place. Is there? Do you have any good centralized resources that help you keep abreast of these uh, developments? Yeah, if you go to our website, we publish newsletters that are available for the public. So if you go to www.blockchain.capital, you can sign up for our newsletters. Those are written by the partners at Blockchain Capital. I would also encourage your users to follow us on Twitter. So we are at Blockchain Cap, and my personal Twitter handle is at P Bart Stevens. That's P-B-A-R-T-S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S. We're constantly tweeting out information about the industry, uh, relevant news articles, opinions, that's a good way to stay in touch with the industry because there's constantly moving and, and there's lots of new developments. And Twitter's a pretty good format to keep track of all these fast-paced developments. Terrific stuff. Bart, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, I really enjoyed it, and hopefully we'll have a chance to speak again soon. Terrific. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Fraser Rice Podcast. Today we spoke with Bart Stevens, the co-founder and managing partner of Blockchain Capital. Please look forward to future podcasts. Thanks for listening and have a great day.